Welcome to CT Startup Podcast, an insider perspective on the Connecticut startup ecosystem. Uh, this is Eric Francis from Fresh Farm Aquaponics. James McLaughlin. Dave Menard from Eartha Kalana. And today with us, we have Lewis Parks from Secure RF. Uh, we're at the Connecticut Innovation Summit. And as you can tell from the background noise, we're going to be doing some live recordings today. And we're very excited to hear some new companies and find out what's going on in the tech community in Connecticut. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, we're excited to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Secure RF. Sure. So, um, Secure RF is focused on securing some of the smallest things in our current ecosystem, often referred to now as the Internet of Things or the Industrial Internet of Things. And uh, many of these devices and many of these things are quite small. In fact, for the uh, for the podcast audience who won't visually see it. I'm actually holding one of the devices, which is the size of a pinhead, and that's the entire computer system, including uh, not only data and information about the device or object that may be implanted in, but also our cryptographic methods that are securing it for authentication and protection. So as you can just see from the device I'm holding up, which is, again, a single chip, it's very, very challenging to secure and provide the privacy or safety, depending on what the goals are of a given product. That is what we do. So we're working in a broad range of markets, and you can think of, well, who needs security? And it could be anything from implantable medical devices um, to some very, very popular things that many of your audience might have seen recently, including the hacking of cars. Hmm. Because a car is a 50 to 100 computer network with no security. So once you're inside that network, uh, people who are knowledgeable can do many, many things that may not be desirable either on a highway or elsewhere while you're in it. That's pretty exciting. Uh, so how did you get into this area? Um, well, I've worked in technology for, for decades, but it's really my partners who are three mathematician cryptographers, very, very well known, who've worked in the area of security for decades, um, have developed uh, methods for ultra-low power, uh, ultra-small and fast security, who approached me uh, many, many years ago saying that they had a new method. The problem in security is, so what? You know, there's, uh, you can read about security every day and it's a so what. However, um, there was this thing at the time called RFID, um, which arguably came, went, and is coming again um, as a big deal. And uh, I said, you know, there's no security for these small, small little chips. If what you're telling me can fit, maybe there's an opportunity to start a company. And uh, four or five weeks later, they came back. Uh, with whiteboards full of formulas, and basically summarized said, it's fits. So that was really the creation of our company to address authentication, again, data encryption on these very, very small computing platforms. And again, you know, back then it was RFID, now it's NFC or near-field communications, often uh, used in payment, mobile payment systems. There's another whole area called iBeacons, which is in essence an extension of yeah. Bluetooth. Um, so the whole thing of the sensor platforms which is exploding and capturing data about all of us and the things we own and basically giving anything in your life an identity on the internet um, is it not necessarily a bad thing, but you may, in fact, at times want to be able to control who sees that data, how much of that data they get. So when I'm walking around, whether it's my heart rate, um, whether it's the thermostat in my house or what room I'm in, which all comes as part of the package, um, 
you know, you don't have an operating system like the laptop in front of you. It's not plugged into the wall like the laptop in front of you. Suddenly, securing it becomes very difficult. That's the challenge we've taken on. So how does it secure it? Is it encrypting the communication between the thing that's connected to the Internet and the uh, computer that it's communicating with? Um, so when I say security, usually, usually, oftentimes people say, oh, you encrypt things. But, of course, security is much more than that. When you get that email from Citibank saying, hey, it's Citibank, you need to reset your account, the first thing you ask is, is it really Citibank um, or somebody in Romania? So authentication is an important part of it. Uh, you know, somebody sends you a message, I'm stuck in a hotel room in London, send me $1,000. Is it really $1,000? Is it really whatever? Message repudiation. So security is a lot of things. So how we do it is we do it, and, and I apologize uh, for some of the, the podcast audience, but I'll, I'll use some words here. So we have developed asymmetric or public key methods of cryptography which fit on these little devices. And that's the big wow thing that we do. So right now, the security at the back of your browsers, when you go to Amazon or your bank, and that, and that little padlock shows up, is relying on cryptographic methods that are between 30 and 40 years old. But they work because your laptop runs at 2 gigahertz or 3 gigahertz and has all that power. So you're not waiting too long. When you go down to these little devices, 8 and 16-bit microcontrollers in your car and the medical device, etc., you might be waiting minutes, if at all, for it to run. So typically, public key or asymmetric is not used. So, for example, it's a different type of security on a wireless router because they don't want to hurt the traffic or hurt your performance. So asymmetric cryptography has only been around about 40, 45 years, and it's very, very big, but it's not because it takes a lot of horsepower typically to run it. And again, that's the innovation that SecureRF has brought to the market is a very lightweight, high-performance, low-power public key method that will fit on these chips. So I'm very ignorant. I use technology, but I'm still very ignorant about how a lot of it works. And so is this basically an SSL cert certification for, like, the sensors? Or is it would that, is that an, you know, because that's what comes up, right, the key that's on the website. So is that what you're, that's what you've created? The, the padlock. So SSL, or Secured Socket Layers, yeah. is a protocol that combines various cryptographic methods, starting off with a public key handshake. Okay. But again, public key is typically considered too uh, computationally intensive. Through a series of certificates, handshakes, and what have you, it then goes over to symmetric or private key. Okay. Um, and that combination of methods altogether is SSL, or now commonly referred to as TLS, the yep. next generation. So... The foundation of those methods is what we provide, except, again, where you're using other names you might be familiar with, like RSA or ECC for elliptic curve. Um, you know, we've invented a new method, which is now being certified, that does the same thing they do, a Diffie-Hellman-like method um, that's just faster. So we provide a foundation that could do an SSL okay. or a TLS protocol where we would be the DNA, the underlying mathematics of that. Okay. Now, are these do these go on the sensors? So would you like place that in the sensor, or would you place that where the data is going to? So that's the unique thing, because we can create such a small footprint, so energy efficient, um, we actually put our cryptographic engine in the chip in the sensor. 
because if you have to go back, and there are many, many wonderful technologies, whether it be for marketing or otherwise, where you can hold your phone up to a chip or a barcode and have it go back out over the internet and find you a URL yep. or a low cost or a better place to get it, but it goes back out over the internet. As soon as you have to connect to a network, you change the dynamics. So if I put a chip in a very, very expensive bottle of wine getting shipped into Asia, where somebody now wants to authenticate that bottle, they likely can't connect to the network in Asia to look it up the yep. way you could standing in Home Depot in Shelton, Connecticut. So you need to have an autonomous platform that can interact solely there, which means you need an engine on the chip. And again, that is what we uniquely do. So there are many solutions that look like this, yep. but what SecureRF has done with the mathematics underneath it is enabled the uh, ability to run cryptographic engines where they have not simply run before. All right. So I'm a, I'm a new startup company, and I want to develop a new sensors for whatever, for the Internet of Things, right? I'm going to come to you to get to put that onto my sensors to make it secure. Correct. Nice. So our model and many of the people we talk to are people who are developing either Bluetooth, uh, Loran, which is a new long-range, you know, 15-mile sensor, yeah. They're working with NFC, near-field communications. Um, we're working with uh, semiconductor companies in the Valley who are developing FPGAs and microcontrollers to go into industrial devices or automobiles. Yes, so we are the software development kit you'd come for to make your device secure or allow it to be authenticated to the cloud, to the phone, etc. Nice. This is pretty fascinating. I mean, there's a there's so there's a multitude of signals going around us right now as we're talking, and there's so many of these signals that I would assume aren't very secure or, or are not secure at all. And I work with companies that that work in iBeacons, especially, um, and it, it's I'm not even sure that most people are aware of how many signals are going to be transferring around them as they move through their daily business in the near future. Um, whether it's you know they think about their credit card. They may think about their computer, but they're not thinking about advertising that is focused entirely on them because they're walking by it, and they're not focusing on on the things that uh, light posts are now going to have intelligent sensors in them that will be measuring a variety of things. It's a uh, it's just a fascinating area, much of which needs to be secured. So, what are you? Uh, why are you here at the Innovation Summit today? What's your? What are you hoping to get out of it? Um. Well. Our company, uh, our company has been an active member in the Connecticut technology arena for many, many years. And, um, you know, there's a, a, a good ecosystem here in terms of both companies operating here and then the people who are supporting those ecosystems. Um, so we like to come out and network as I've already described some of our business model. I'm, it's very hard for me to walk up to somebody on the street and, and explain I've patented the number five and here's the formula. You should buy this. Um, it's more likely that somebody is going to say, oh, we've got a marketing iBeacon that we want to sell and uh, we want Macy's to use. And uh, you'll be able to put up a privacy note when they download the app saying that this has been fully secured and made so it only authenticates against this particular app and does not provide any information to third parties or outside sources because we've licensed and partnered with SecureRF. And so there might be some of those people walking around here today. So the product is available and it's out there on the market now. Absolutely. And do you have any... Uh, I'll let that part out. Uh, 
Um, yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Many, yeah. many. No, no. Do you are do you, are you going more after bigger companies established, or have you are you, have you worked with some startups? How old are you? How old's your company? Because it seems like you're not necessarily a startup. But you're we're we're not a startup. I mean, the the technology we're talking about today comes from the last four or five years of focus of the company, um, in terms of what we're doing. Um, we we do work with some startups, um, although they tend to be pretty unique. So, for example, we're working with a startup now who's doing a uh, medical device uh, that has a Bluetooth component to it for data collection and reporting um, that's, that will be a consumer-like product, mm-hmm. uh, and that company's in Israel. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's an example of a small startup we're talking to. There's a startup we're talking to who's developing new head unit technologies for Tier 1 automotive vendors, which is the sort of thinking brains in the console yeah. of a car, um, and they're based in uh, Santa Clara, California. So we do work with startups, but we, we tend to, because we're a small guy, we're looking to leverage who and what we are. So we work with uh, large uh, defense contractors, prime contractors. Yep. We do a lot in the Department of Defense. In the commercial sector, uh, in particular now, with a focus on the commercial side, we, we are focused very much on semiconductor companies. Uh, FPGA companies, the people making the microcontrollers and chips that are going into things uh, and providing licenses to their customers. Yep. So that's that's sort of our go-to-market model. Nice. So why did you decide to start your company in Connecticut? Um, it was, you know, I, I would suggest there wasn't an overt strategic um Reason, and you can edit that out when you send it over to Connecticut Innovations. <laughs> um, I was uh, I was physically located here. Uh, I have three mathematician cryptographers who are world class. Uh, one of them top twenty thirty in the world for what he does. He's in New York City. Um, you know the environment is good here. I've worked in technology in Connecticut before this uh, for several years. Um, you know there's a good operational base. Uh, in fact, uh, we started the company in Westport, Connecticut, near my home, and uh, have now moved it to Shelton, Connecticut. So we, in fact, moved deeper into Connecticut as opposed to closer to New York. Um, you know, and at the same time, we've just opened an office in San Jose uh, because, you know, one thing that, good or bad, on every street corner, it's just another multi-billion dollar semiconductor company there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that, that's hard to replicate, and, and that is our partner in our target market. Nice. So, what's your personal background before you got into uh, Secure RF? Um, so, my personal background is uh, is arguably related. So, it goes all the way back to uh, a, an interesting experiment when I went to high school way back then. Could children use computers? Um, of course, a little facetious as in high school. A, a, uh, I want to say I was a sophomore at the time. I'm translating all of this because this happened in Canada. So I'm, trans- <laughs> I'm translating, translating from metric what's grade 10. Um, anyways, and they brought in to see if they could teach us how to program. And, of course, in those days, it's all mainframe. So there were punch cards and what have you. And anybody who has a three- or four-year-old at the table here knows that, yes, children can definitely handle technology. Um, so I was very fortunate to come out of high school programming in three, four languages and then went uh, on uh, post-high uh, school business school continued and then went on to IBM, uh, both engineering and sales training uh, in Canada, and then continued uh, mostly in the technology track, often being the human who does the translating between the tech 
and the customer or market, which is a very critical component um, in this particular uh, business. Um, if anybody downloads a white paper, which they're welcome to from our site, um, you'll remember why you dropped advanced calculus. <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, you, you started grew up in Canada? I did. And you wound up in Connecticut? I wound up in Connecticut. Now, was that as a result of IBM or somebody, some other company? It's a, it's a result of another company and uh, a bit of a circuitous route, but uh, sometime after leaving uh, IBM, I started a publishing company, which I ran in Canada for a period of time, and then uh, grew it and ended up with an office in New York City. And of course, New York being the center of the world, for some things, um, <laughs> sort of had me move the focus of my operations to New York. Um, I, in fact, technically still own that company, but I then moved on to other opportunities in New York City, which kept me there. And of course, the, uh, the ultimate um, you know, commitment to a location, I met my wife. Yep. There you go. So there you go. Usually what happens. Yes. yes. So now, where, where in Canada are you from? I'm from Winnipeg. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. For all of our hockey fans. Exactly. Are you, are you a Jets fan? Um, I was. I was. As a matter of fact, my family was in the sporting goods business in uh, Winnipeg, and we actually provided the Jets with all their equipment, among other things. So, uh, yes, I've been. I used to be to many Jets games, and uh, now I have three boys, and we make it to the Rangers. Uh, sorry for anybody on the cusp here going to Boston. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yes, and, uh, and occasionally I go out and play with my boys, and they'll tell everybody I was in the NHL, which I far from was not, but I can still stand up on a pair of skates. So. As, as long as you're not a Habs fan, coming from a Bruins fan, I'm okay with it. Uh, so we're going to talk after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to those who are wondering where the extra voice came from, uh, Mike Kaufman just was able to join us halfway through, um, and I uh, just wanted to point that out and really highlight it for everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. Um, but uh, no, most of my family comes from Quebec, so I was curious. Great. All right. Um, so, what are some of the challenges that you faced along the way, especially here here in Connecticut? What about the community or the resources or lack thereof has made it uh, difficult for you, or positive? Yeah, um, you know. So I would say that you know what's very positive about the Connecticut uh, community is access. Um, you know, there's some good people here who are doing some good things in terms of trying to provide resource uh, support to early stage companies. Um, so I would say that there's good access to those people. Um, you can call them, whether they're located in Hartford or New Haven, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and that's been really, really great. I think what's been lacking is, and again, and this, by the way, is a filtered view, because if I was here talking to you about my bio startup, mm -hmm. I would suggest life is good across the board, particularly if there's a bio startup coming out of Yale. Um, <laughs> there's yeah. a good infrastructure, there's money, there's people standing on the street waiting for you, um, and they're ready to go. Um, moving away from that, I think it gets a little harder for entrepreneurs in Connecticut. Uh, there is only, um, as of recently, somewhat of an angel network or structure for early stage funding um, you know Connecticut Innovations has tried to fill that void um, which they have done you know with some levels of success um, but I think that nurturing companies beyond uh, the early angel stage napkin is a uh, challenging uh, situation that really needs an environment and when I say environment you know Boston in 128 was an environment um, I go out to Silicon Valley every few weeks. That is an environment, you know, basically 
you can throw almost anything in the dirt out there and a technology company will pop up. Um, so, and then also having access quickly and uh, without um, a lot of the friction, let's say, that normal business would have in, in the speed at which a technology needs to move forward. So small technology company can live and die in a two, four, or eight-month time frame. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if it takes one to two months to keep getting back to meetings to people who want to look at your spreadsheet again, which is sort of a Wall Street, New York City financial training, as opposed to in Silicon Valley, if you're sitting with the person who just came out of Cisco, was an engineer in your area, and has three other associates who have software and or startup experience who evaluate you as such, you know, and again, this is not a knock on the situation because you can't really create that, but um, there's less friction often in either quickly giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down um, to a company that either should carry on or maybe should die. Um, and sometimes it's hard to, to do that in that time frame in, a, in an environment like Connecticut. If I said name five top leading VCs in Connecticut, not Connecticut, but mean for the U.S., you know, I can quickly give you, you know, who the five are out of the valley uh, to a lesser degree, San Antonio, et cetera, sure. et cetera. So I think that's a bit of a challenge. And, you know, and that's something, again, you know, the, the state of Connecticut has done a lot of work to try and create that environment. But at some point in time, it becomes chemical. In other words, chemistry needs to appear. Um, you know, what comes out of Stanford that goes over to Menlo Park that then rides its way up to Sand Hill. Um, you know, it's, that's hard to replicate. I was at a function in the city last night. About a half of it was from Silicon Valley talking to a guy who, um, let's just describe his, uh, his company briefly as uh, collecting data from cars, um, which didn't seem particularly whatever, but they just received $100 million to move their company forward. <laughs> that, that was an early funding of his company. That's the bet being placed, you know, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise. Yeah. You know, and anyways, so um, I think Connecticut is great for some things early stage and access and what have you. Um, there have been some great programs for intern and supporting internships and all that. Um, you know, and I say we need embedded engineers. Um, you know, we're having to hire students and develop them, which mm -hmm. is there's some great, great students coming out of UConn, I will tell you, um, Yale, etc. cetera. Um, but, you know, there aren't a lot of embedded software guys on the streets in Connecticut. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of developments that have happened in the past few years that have certainly increased the community. I mean, just looking out at the floor here, you know, you have about a I think they have about 150 companies or so uh, that are attending the event today, and you wouldn't have seen that even three years ago, three or four years ago. And and so there is, there is some momentum being generated, but there's a lot left to be done. But there are people out there. I know I don't know if you know the program A100 and Derek Coke, who's uh, he, he runs a software development program that's trying to increase the amount of software developers are available to companies in Connecticut. So there's, you know, there are people out there trying to change these things, but it's a process. Um, and it's one that we can't let go of. No, I agree. I agree. Growth is good. <laughs> so are you, did you get, uh, funding for Secure RF or is it self-funded? Uh, and the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> So, uh, so we are a typical startup uh, in that sense. So we were angel funded. Mm -hmm. um, we raised a, a fair round of angel funding over the first sure. initial years. 
Um, we've also participated in things like, uh, and depending if you're military or commercial, SIBR or SBIR. Yep. So <laughs> all the military guys, it's a SIBR. Yeah. And if you're a commercial, it's an SBIR. So we have participated in both military and non-military SBIRs. Um, and again, there's great support in the state uh, by Deb Santi, uh, Mary London, etc. I mean, and frankly, I know there's a talk later today here about you know non-dilutive funding, and, and that's probably one of the best programs if you understand how it works um, to reach out to. So we participated in um, some of those programs as well as other um, uh, similar non-state federal programs in terms of supporting us. Uh, we've taken advantage of internship and location grants. And then most recently, we've begun the process down the path of the ABC round of funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we happen to be, I, I perceive, in a particularly white-hot area. You know, Internet of Things, Industrial Internet of Things is white hot you know every, everybody is quickly sweeping themselves under that umbrella and usually the second paragraph in any article is security privacy or safety in order to make it work which is what we do so we are the intersection of those two things um so um you know we have the benefit of, of something that we couldn't create you know we've been doing this security thing for many years um but the market has moved towards us so we're taking advantage of both from the selling side and from the funding side right now. So did you do the SBIRs before you got angel funding or after or concurrently? Concurrently. Concurrently? Concurrently. Now, did you use those to, to basically develop your, your product or was it to test in each the individual markets? One of them, which was an Air Force one, I would, argue, would suggest was a test the market because that was a very specific uh, security design solution we did for some uh, military platforms. Um, so, you know, success is there. And, and I, I don't want to sort of stray too far off, but, you know, there's two types of SBIRs. Yeah. There's granting SBIRs and contractual. So yeah. the military is contractual. They like what you, you tell them or show them. They buy it. Yeah. So you get a contract. You get a customer. Um, and I don't think you can or should ever stop. As a matter of fact, we partner now our approach is to partner with a significant prime. So, for example, we just submitted one recently to the Missile Defense Agency with Raytheon as our partner, yep. um, even though maybe we're further along than we were the last time we did this. Um, on, the, on the granting side, we were funded for several years by the National Science Foundation, uh, which was actually for technology development. So National Science Foundation is not going to buy what we make, yep. uh, but they significantly funded us to the point where some of the solutions we sell today come from that development work. Because you you commercialize the research that you do. Correct. Yep. And, that, and that, frankly, is their goal. They, they get measured by, we invested this money, and our return is you reporting to us that yes. you've generated revenue from it. And didn't the state of Connecticut, we, don't we have like the highest uh, SBIR grant? Like we, we, our companies get more money from SBIRs than any other uh, state. Or we're, we're up there. Because that was that one uh, document that was shared a little while ago um, by Risa. That's uh, okay. We can make up facts. Yeah, it's a I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll make up facts. <laughs> is it, is it, hold it. Is this a political debate? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just okay, I just, I just bought Microsoft. <laughs> um Anyways, yeah, I mean, Connecticut has done very, very well, particularly in the last six to ten years. And, and again, it's specifically because they brought in, uh, and there's more people there, and I apologize, I'm not naming everybody, but sort of the, the founder being Deb Santi and then Mary London. 
but these women and there's several other people there and again my apologies for not naming everybody uh, they they net bring in money to the state yeah um, you know where a lot of the other things we do which are also good is money not leaving the state but it's state money flowing into the companies again you need yeah. you need a combination of all these things yeah Mary London's office they, they gave a lot of good support I mean they they uh, Reset brought them in for the accelerator programs, um, mm-hmm. and she's just very accessible. That and that's the thing about Connecticut, right? Is that you can access a lot of these individuals, and it's a lot easier to get to them. Uh, it's probably one or two people versus in Silicon Valley, where you're really jumping through hoops to, to get to people. Um, yes, so that, that definitely is a good thing for uh, the, especially the younger generation, right? Because they don't have the network to actually uh, to leverage. Correct. Absolutely. So, Lewis, what? Stepping away from your company for a moment. What has you excited these days in the tech field? What is it outside of the Internet of things that you're seeing that you personally are finding interesting? Um, you know, I think uh, cautiously excited. Um, you know, the development and the advancement, a lot of the drone technology that's going on. Uh, you know, and there's a whole area of intelligence, whether it's an autonomous car, an autonomous drone, or maybe an autonomous jetliner. Um, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that's going to remove a human element, which would be a positive thing many times. Um, and I think there's some interesting things. I was at a uh, meeting three, four weeks ago, sitting at lunch, a uh, conference we spoke at, and uh, the guys there, and again, semiconductor companies, and one of their sons is working now at a drone company in uh, the Valley. And the drone, actually, what you do is you take this drone and you throw it up in the air, and then it follows you. Yeah, I've seen um, that. Wow. You know, and not only that, but they've developed it fairly robustly. So one of their demonstrations is a guy in a kayak yep. who drops it in the water and it rises up out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you think about just something simple like uh, getting that sports footage you want to send to the college of the football player or what have you, um, track runner, etc. You know, forgetting the real estate shot. You know, any of these commercial things that you know were not either possible or cost a lot of money suddenly you know anybody can be doing this stuff um, but I do think that a lot of the um, you know transportation is an underlying vital component for I would suggest the economy and quality of life you can you can link transportation almost to any significant rise of, a, of an economy or a country whether it's the railroad transcontinental highways uh, air flight, you know, etc. And I think that um, with the autonomy, the ability to truly optimize a system using autonomous technologies, i.e., get more cars more safely, for example, on 95 in Connecticut, and not have all the stop and go and what have you, would be a great outcome. You know, it does. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know car of the future sort of thing. It could just be simply be without causing billions of dollars of infrastructure to add one more lane, which is always a losing proposition. <laughs> um, I think there's some exciting stuff happening in, in technology that will make us all better and improve quality of life. There was actually an article yesterday that Connecticut is considering a law to start testing uh, autonomous vehicles on its roadways. Um, so it's nice to see that we're, we're going to stay current. Well, Tesla just came out with the hands-free technology in their cars. Have you yeah. have you seen that? It's basically a software update, which is kind of scary, and it's still in beta mode. 
Um, yeah, I saw the videos of the people taking their hands off on the highway, which they're obviously... <laughs> There's a couple where they had to put their hands back on the wheel. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty interesting. Did you have a chance to see the 60 Minutes on autonomous vehicles a couple weeks ago? Um, I think I did. I, I watch a lot of stuff on different, you know, <laughs> TED Talks, what have you, autonomous vehicles. I'm familiar with Google's efforts, <laughs> etc. Uh, so, yes, I, you know, uh-huh. that and also in the military a lot of things that are being done. So yeah. it's exciting. It's exciting. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it, yeah. Again, I think there'll be a lot of good quality things that, that come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw that one thing or they're saying that, uh, the question is for an autonomous car is that if you're one person and it's right. feeding into like a crowd of people, do you drive, does it drive you off the cliff and sacrifice you versus everybody else? The, the ethics of <laughs> the autonomy. Ethics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, I mean, it's interesting debate, right? Cause it, I, th- I think that's a setting. Well, yeah. <laughs> setting, right? Um, a moral setting. Yeah, a moral setting on the yeah, car. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's in the 9.2 update to my uh, iPhone. It's not a bug, the, it's a feature. Uh, there's yeah. just a Hail Satan switch. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at all these things and to sort of bring, bring it back at least to an area where, you know, um, my kids won't hit me for bad humor... Um, all these things are really good, but at the same time, if you look up GPS spoofing, um, you may not get really excited with what you see in the ability, you know, and again, uh, GPS, which is a relied upon for everything from getting me here in time for this podcast um, to all sorts of other critical navigational things, etc. Um, GPS spoofing is a reality, and so uh, whether your car doesn't have the algorithm to decide between, you know, children or cliff um somebody at the side of the road uh, rather than setting off an ied uh, may decide to use gps spoofing to uh take that convoy and have it drive off something yeah. um and your company's technology could could protect against that well again you know what we're focused on is authentication so is a signal you're receiving an authentic signal and uh and it goes all the way back to earlier in the podcast where i said you got an email from citibank is it really citibank so your car, your vehicle, your drone, whatever needs to be asking that question. As a matter of fact, people don't realize, you know, the extent of the exposure. So an easy exposure to describe smart buildings. And there's one uh, in Amsterdam by Deloitte. You can see a really cute two-minute clip. And they're very excited to announce that they have 26 or 28,000 lights in the building, all connected via the Internet for smart lighting. Um, so I would suggest that if there's no security on the lights, which have a very small little processor in it to compute, each one of those lights is now an access point to the network um, that is not protected. So if I find myself in the appropriate room, shielded and what have you, I now can do my thing. Um, there recently was the same thing with printers. Everybody's printer is on the network. And in fact, somebody, for the purposes of marketing their protection, demonstrated the ability of putting malware or a virus in a printer that allowed them to take over an office's network. Um, so an entry point. And uh, was it successful and as it, a marketing effort? It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, was successful because <laughs> HP did license the technology because, well, you know, a lot of security is not that you need to protect that threat. It's that the threat is potential or possible, you know, and then what's the ramifications if later you're the person who decided, well, the probability was low, so we thought we'd just, you know, on a risk management yeah. basis, just go with it. Right. You know, we didn't think we needed to fix that thing in the car. Who could die? Okay. Um, so, 
you know, there's a lot of things. And it even gets a little more mundane if you have a car that has your temperature or your uh, tire pressure displayed in the dash. Well, the way that works is there's a sensor in the wheel of your car transmitting the pressure to the computer on the car. And because that's RF, radio frequency, it's transmitting towards the computer on the car, but it's also transmitting outwards. And those wheels are paired specifically to your car, so it is broadcasting the identity of your car outwards. And this is also known to the government, who thinks this is a good way to monitor vehicles crossing borders, because people don't often think about changing their wheels going back and forth across the border. (laughs) So again, if you want full privacy, you may want to then have security on this little sensor in your wheel that will only talk to your car. So when, you know, you could expand this conversation significantly when you talk about all these great technologies that we were just going over about, wow, won't this be great? And and, well, what else is it telling them? And, you know, uh, no, I didn't want my car to pull me over at Dunkin' Donuts. Why did it do that? You know, it's aggravating enough. The banner shows up in ways, um, (laughs) you know, so who can pay to do what? So it's an interesting world. So what, what's the year that, uh, computers started going into cars? I'm going to get a car before that. (laughs) <laughs> like what's that just go old school do a pinto or something well i'm saying well a classic car now is still what 90s like it's still you, you'd, <laughs> it's, it's, you'd it's, probably it's, have to go early <laughs> early 90s or pre-90s because basically you know if you drive into your service station and they say my car's not running right and the first thing they do is reach under the dash by yeah. your wheel and plug in a computer to analyze it yeah. which is easily a 2000 pre-2000 You've already got a network situation. Yeah, and actually, there's a. I was having an interesting conversation because at my high school, um, they just th- this past year closed down the shop class. So, like, you know, it was called keeping your car alive, where you'd go in there, you'd bring your car in, do you, you know, a uh, oil change or rotate your tires or whatever. And one of the big things, the reasons why they got rid of it, is because most of the kids now you can't change their oil. You like if you change their oil, they try to do it themselves. They mess up the computer system or the warranty doesn't work or whatever so the kids can't actually even work on their cars and so they're trying to again switch it over where it's programming where if they knew how to program they actually probably could work on the cars do you, <laughs> so do you think kind of... they could fix my volkswagen with a diesel engine no oh, no that, that that's a bigger issue <laughs> <laughs> you, you know it's the same thing with motorcycles now too as a as a rider you know a lot of people on motorcycles because there's something they could own they could work on they could fix and they could enjoy it and it was theirs so they didn't really have to go yeah. to a shop other than get inspected every year and now uh, you look at motorcycles coming out, and they have anti-lock brakes. They have tire pressure sensors. They have all kinds of electronic equipment. And there's an ECU inside the motorcycle yeah. that helps govern how the engine runs and works. And it's a you know, it's a brave new world. So yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the last questions, Lewis, if you could, you know, give a suggestion to young entrepreneurs coming up here in the Connecticut community, what would it be? Um, I would suggest that whatever your idea is, and there are many, many good ideas from many, many, many directions, is to look for one or more partners. And <clears throat> a partner could just be somebody generous with their time, knowledgeable in your market. The partner could be a large entity who has the itch you can scratch. Um, but I would look for a supportive element, and it could also include the people at Connecticut Innovations who in turn could find you that partner. But I think it's important that as early as you can to get involved with your tentative 
customer and or target market who will guide you in building your product, your company, your idea, so that when you come out of it at the other end, whether it's two weeks later with an app or two years later with a significant hardware or bio advancement, um, it actually will match something that is needed, wanted, or required in the market. And uh, I think if you follow that process, as opposed to blindly running off and spending two weeks or two years you know, in a room building something and then coming out because there's a lot of really great stuff that works, it's just nobody wants to buy it. And that's unfortunate. It's, and that's sometimes hard to accept. You got something and it works and it's great, but nobody wants to buy it. And unfortunately, you know, that's a very important part of the equation in terms of moving forward. Yeah, that's great advice. Any last questions for Lewis? No. It was very good talking with you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, this was very enlightening. Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Take care. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Kevin Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Martha Kalina, LLP.